Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. Mechanics of CRRT, normal flows and normal pressures. Now, this is a two-part, so please bear with me. I'm just going to get through the whole thing and be done with my two talks in one shot. So, you know, here's a CRRT machine, and I don't work for... Baxter Gambro, but I will tell you this Prismaplex, so they have a new one called the Prismax, but it is a uh, it is an excellent widget for uh, doing CRRT. I have to say, I think they have the best widget on the market, um, and that's just an unbiased clinical opinion based on my experience. Um, this is a standard Maherker or uh, temporary dialysis catheter. And you see the various different aspects of it. I'm going to get a little more into this as we move forward. And then we have a patient. And what we're attempting to do is put this inside this patient's venous system somewhere and make it flow through this. So let's look at these various pieces and parts. And I highlighted the ones that I wanted to talk about. Um, so first of all, I want to point this out to you. I want you to look right here. You will see that exactly the opposite of perfusion, access is red and return is blue. That is completely the opposite of what we are used to. The reason why it is this way in the dialysis world is if you take the blood and ultrafiltrate it, you will notice that it is always darker after the hemoconcentrator. Mm -hmm. So the more hemoconcentrated, the higher the hemoglobin is, the darker the color will be because both of those are associated to color. That's what gives it the color and the oxygen reactivity and so forth. But given the same amount of oxygen content, hemoconcentrated blood will be darker than non-hemoconcentrated blood. And that's why it's opposite. And sometimes that makes it a little bit weird for us. Access is red. It just makes no sense. But it you have to think of it that way. Um, so the first one here on the left is your access pressure pod. And you see it here diagrammatically. And here it is over here on the actual machine. This pump turns clockwise. Okay? So this is your access pressure pod. In other words, it's measuring what is coming from your access catheter from the patient, if you will. Then you have next on the top right, right here, your effluent pressure pod, that's this pod right here, that's the pod right there, and that's operated by this pump. And that is actually measuring the pressure on the ultrafiltrate side of the hemoconcentrator, not the blood side, but the hemoconcentrator side. And this is a central flow hemoconcentrator, which means the blood path is through the center of the pores. Out, I mean, the, uh, the, the little uh, straws, the, the, uh, the uh, fibers. The outside of the fibers is where the ultrafiltrate collects. Then your return pressure port 
in this machine is here. And that is measuring the pressure of the blood as it's going back to the patient. This is, an, this is a uh, bubble detector, this is a brake, but the, this port is actually measuring the pressure after the filter to the catheter tip. Over here, you have your deaeration chamber, which is here, and you have your blood coming in. It has air will rise to the top, and then the rest of it goes down. And a little more about that, I'll show you some close-ups of this as well. And then you have, oops, excuse me. You have your filter pressure pod, which is here. This is measuring a positive pressure as the blood comes up from the pump. And this is before the filter. This is after the filter. So basically what you can do then is take those two pressures and get a pressure drop across your filter. So that's your basic system of a CRRT machine. All of the pressure pods, what they mean, and so forth. This is for measuring blood leak. It's looking for, uh, for iron, for hemoglobin. Uh, this is uh, a break, as I said, an air bubble detector. This is for a syringe. If you wanted to put uh, anticoagulation through a syringe, here's your bags down here, but we'll go over all of that as we move forward. Here's a little closer up view of it and what all these pressures mean. So if you remember, I said, this is your access pressure. The pressure in this, when going through a temporary dialysis catheter, should be about negative 50 to negative 150. Your pressure in the filter, which is here, remember this is negative, this is the positive side now, after the roller pump, should be somewhere about plus 100 to plus 250. And these are the ranges of the machine's capability. Your effluent pressure here should be positive 50 to positive 150. And that's again, on the effluent side of the pump. And this pump is what is controlling how much effluent or how much ultrafiltrate leaves the, pa leaves the patient's blood supply. And then you have your return pressure down here. Here's your deaeration chamber. And you see the blood coming into it. You should have a level about to this point, there's a little mark, and then this is going to that return pressure like I told you, but it's basically measured right there. And that, as I said, deaeration chamber, and there's your return pressure port. So one of the biggest problems, we just got through talking about it actually, with CRRT machines is that they will clot. They have a very high level of clotting at the filter clotting and not being able to use them. In fact, if you look at this study that was published in Nursing Critical Care, you see that filter clotting is 46% of the time and catheter degradation or malfunction, which usually will lead to filter clotting because you have terrible flow characteristics, is 36%. So a full 82% of the time, your failure to have good, a good CRRT run is secondary to either filter clotting or catheter degradation and malfunction, which results in filter clotting. And that's usually simply because you do not have good flow. 
And when you don't have good flow and the filter keeps clotting and you have to keep setting it up, you have interruption of therapy and the, the, the effectiveness or efficacy of your therapeutic modality is greatly diminished as a result of that. Now, the brain seems to work best thinking in threes. And I've looked at this and it's actually published data. It's really true. So why do we get all the alarms? It comes down to three things. Access, access, and access. The actual access pressure vis-a-vis -vis the resistance to flow. The resistance to flow in the return or distal port of the cannula and location, location, location. So there's my threes. Placement of your temporary dialysis catheter is so incredibly significant as to whether or not you're going to have a good run. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as we move forward through these slides. Here is a standard temporary dialysis catheter. I don't really know which one. Duraflow, I guess it is. There's Mahertor, there's Quinton, there's all kinds. I don't like these with the loop, but it fit better in my picture. So you have the access, and if you look carefully, I'm gonna zoom in on this a little bit. Right here, you'll see these holes. These are your access holes. I'm just gonna zoom in a little bit. There you see them right there. So there's your access holes. Okay, and down here where this introducer tip is, is your return. So it's a standard double lumen. Your natural blood flow is going to be this direction. In fact, let me just draw on it if I can. It's going to be this direction. That's your nat natural blood flow path in a temporary dialysis catheter. Your blood goes in this way. It goes out this way. So what does that mean? If blood is traveling like this, you have a lot less chance for recirculation. If we were to reverse this, which I have done for a variety of reasons, and we're sucking this way, and we're pumping out this way into a native circulation, you could easily see where it's mm -hmm. gonna get trapped back and you're gonna have increased re recirculation. That's the reason for it. When you say you reversed it, sorry to interrupt, do you mean you put your access and your uh, return? Correct. So here, mm -hmm. so here, look at the catheter. So normally, your red is your access. Mm -hmm. This is going to the pump, to pump. And this is your return coming from the pump or back to patient, mm -hmm. to patient. If I reverse these and put this one instead of to the pump, to the patient, and this one instead of front to the patient, to the pump, you see that I just reversed them. So I hooked the red here and red. the blue here. You hooked the red on the blue and the blue on the red. Correct. And I do that, and I'll show you actually why I okay. do that sometimes, because I figure some therapy may be better than no therapy, and it's just a really bad catheter placement, and it will work this way, so let's just do it. Um, and that happens sometimes. Hmm. So where do you think the 
three, so I'm doing the threes today. Where do you think the three best locations for access of a temporary dialysis catheter are? I can guess one. Guess. ECMO circuit. Ah, that's not one of the oh. three for a temporary dialysis catheter. Oh, right. Um, pass. John? John, any idea? Where's the best three places to put your temporary dialysis catheter for CRRT? Temporary dialysis catheter. Yeah. Where's well, this? Uh, I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess because we're always, all of ours are on ECMO. But, um, well, um, temporary dialysis or people who are on dialysis chronically? No, it's it's for CRRT in the ICU, non-ECMO patients. Well, we do, we do, um, I've seen it done femorally. I femorally is the only mm -hmm. place I've ever seen mm -hmm. it. I've seen it done. I think I've seen it done left subclavian. Mm. Oh. I think I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not an expert on this. So um, and sometimes you end up having to do what you got to do. The yeah. three best Gosh. locations for your CRRT or temporary dialysis catheter are one the oh. right IJ. Wow. Two. The right IJ. Oh. Three, the right IJ. I've never seen that. Number and four. Problem, and the problem with that is, is that most of the time where our ECMO cannula is. Calm down. Everybody's got to calm down. We're not talking about ECMO <laughs> patients yet. We haven't even gotten there yet. But the fourth best location. If you say right IJ. Tammy, the fourth best location is your ECMO circuit. Yay. Now, that's not for the temporary dialysis catheter. That's the best for, for access. Mm -hmm. So I kind of threw you off there on purpose. Okay. It was a poorly crafted slide on my part, but I'm trying to drive my point home. And we're going to talk a little bit about why this is. Because if you, you know, if you're in a busy practice, how many times you've been, John, you've been, you, you two, you're walking through the ICU. You have nothing to do with the patient over there in that room. You're taking care of these two ECMO patients over here, but they can't get the CRRT machine to work, and they see you, a perfusionist. They know you understand this stuff, and they go, Tammy, can you please tell me why this isn't working? I can't make it work. Mm -hmm. And you figure out what the problem is. And it's usually not something that anyone wants to hear. You need a new line your access is screwed. Now, I'll reverse it, I'll try all kinds of things, but the problem is your access. If you don't change the catheter, you're gonna have a bad, you're just not gonna be able to do this. Those are realities. And then they have to call somebody to come put another line in and all hell breaks loose. But by then I've already made my way down to my area and I just sit there quietly. <laughs> so why is this? Well, let's look at insertion sites. So I'm gonna blow this one up first. So if you look at it from a subclavian catheter, and this is the right subclavian, which is way better than the left subclavian. I don't, even have a, I don't even have anything on that because that is probably the worst place to put it. It has to go in the subclavian vein. Then it has to make its way through the innominate vein, the big blue, cross it over before it can even get to the right atrium. So you have all kinds of challenges in terms of the uh, catheter, the, the shape of the catheter. And you see these catheters are not all that big. They're 11 French, maybe 13 French at the most, but most of them are about 11 French. 
And then you have to consider the length and all of this kind of stuff. You really want the tip if you can get it in the right age frame, if you mm -hmm. do, if you can. And here you kind of see that, but you see it's making this big curve. These temporary dialysis catheters, when they get hot, get very soft. So let's look at it over here in the femoral. And what's so interesting about this is it's showing, come on, stay still. It's showing right here, the lateral port, which is that port I showed you on that catheter, stuck against the venous wall. And here is the free port or the return. So this is your access, this is your return. So if you look at it, access is red, return is blue. This port right here is being sucked from this port right here. And this is returning that way. Now this shows it reversed, so for whatever reason, but um, I'm not sure why, so let me go over here. Probably should have looked at this more carefully, but if this is the inflow and this is the outflow, forget the colors, it's sucking against the wall. If I reverse it and start sucking from here, from this distal tip, then you can see that if I'm pumping this direction, it'll push it off that wall and will flow. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to you now? Yes. Okay. So for whatever reason, they actually have this backwards. Access is always going to be red, red not outflow. So keep that in mind, unless they mean outflow from the pump, but the arrow's pointing that way. So I can't explain that, but whatever, bad diagram. I'm not, I'm going to blame whoever made that. So the right IJ, what makes that so perfect? Now you can see it's just a straight shot, straight shot right to the heart. It doesn't have any bends. It doesn't have any curves. You know, this is one of those curved catheters. But again, when these things get warm, they will tend to bend. And the other thing that is so important with these catheters is my uh, next slide, which is right here. It shows you the right IJ. It shows you your access in the SVC, your return distal in the right atrium. And if you look at this area right here, you notice that it is hubbed. Mm. It is right straight in. If you leave some of this catheter out of the body, it will get kinked. And when it does, you're toast. They will kink and there's then nothing you can do except put a wire in, exchange it, put a new one in. Mm -hmm. You cannot unkink these catheters once they're kinked. Plus, it's also kind of short. It might not make it into the right atrium. Right? Well, they come in different lengths. Oh. So you want to select your locations, the place you're putting it. Mm -hmm. So there's various lengths. And there's actually a really good slide that discusses what the length of your catheter should be, mm. depending on what vessel you're going to access. Because as John pointed out, Sometimes you cannot access the right IJ. It doesn't have to necessarily be ECMO. But if you're on ECMO, to put a catheter in the patient, even if you're doing a non-anticoagulation or very low anticoagulation strategy, is risky business. Mm. It's not only infection risk, and that's, of course, the femoral. I hate the femoral because it's such a high infection area, you, it's very hard to stand your patient up if you were going to try to do that. Could you imagine the patient that we, we recently extubated and tried to stand on ECMO if he was femorally cannulated? 
It, it really would be, I mean, I, I know, know it can works. be done, but I think it would be a very dangerous, very bad idea. So the same thing with these, with these animals, you have these, a lot of these patients are obese, they have anus, they have very hard to get it, and sepsis is a very big problem, but that's different topic. Hey, Joe, can I ask you a quick question? Yes, sir. What is the, you know, I know patient size is a patient, all that matters, but you need a certain French size. You talked about the length, but you need a certain French size in order to have these, these flows uh, that, that we're looking for. So give us an idea of what size French size is too small. Well, I mean, I think anything less than I think anything less than eleven French would be yeah. too small. And I you, mean, a standard standard ones that I'm used to are eleven French, um, yes. and it, kind of, it depends on the size of your patient. I I deal in the adult world, so I need to keep that. You know, they do have CRRT for pediatrics. Um, I'm not oh, referring to that at all. In the adult world, I would say eleven French. 12 French, 11 French is probably the smallest where you're going to be able to get enough flow. But again, really um, hooking it into a circuit like the CRRT, I mean, the ECMO circuit, it makes the most sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think uh, that phone call I was telling you about earlier, I think they had a nine French. Way too small. Now, it depends. If the patient was a teeny, 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 like yeah, a cachectic, you know, 45 kilo, 80-year-old woman. Uh, but regardless, that's a, regardless, mm -hmm. regardless of the size of the patient, though, from the standpoint of the CRT device, you need that, you know, 250, 300 cc flow to keep that from plotting off. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're stuck with a nine French. Maybe the patient was is too small or maybe that's just what they put in. But now you've got a different problem. You can't keep the CRT function, right? Yes. And that's probably very true. Um, so I do think that there's always going to be um, nuance associated with what can we put in this patient? Is it shorter? You know, the shorter your catheter, the smaller your lumen diameter can be. So many factors are uh, involved in it that I, I, I would say in my experience, anything smaller than an 11 French, and I have done a lot of it um, for an adult patient, is, uh, is not going to work. And they do have different size filters, John. They have you know, larger and smaller surface area filters. So I'm not sure all of that in terms of the the uh, the pediatric world. Um, again, so I'm talking only adult, but I'm used to either the uh, the M100 or the HF1500 uh, are the two filters that I'm most uh, knowledgeable about. One is an AN69 filter, and the other one is a polysulfone filter media. So. I mean, with notwithstanding all of that, I think uh, 11 French is probably the smallest that I would want to see in an adult patient. So getting back to the pressures, there is a measured pressure and then there is a software calculated pressure. And this is going to be your transmembrane pressure. So this is the pressure that is, and I'll talk a little bit about it, but it basically is calculated by the machine, but based on actual measured uh, uh, pressures. And I'll show you what that is. But it basically tells you how many or what what amount of your pores of the, reg the, the, the little straws, the little filter uh, that the blood's passing through, the hollow fiber, what percentage of those pores are open or potentially clogged, blocked. 
So the transmembrane pressure is the filter pressure plus the return pressure divided by two minus the effluent pressure. So what you're actually measuring with the transmembrane pressure, as I mentioned, is the influence of this pressure. Let me go to a different color. Of this pressure, this pressure, and this pressure. And this pressure is going to be higher here than it's going to be in this region, right? So there's going to be loss of pressure. This is going to be your delta P from here to here, but there's going to be pressure difference throughout this flood pathway. And so all of these combined give you a transmembrane pressure. And as that transmembrane pressure increases, it is telling you that you're not that your filter is clotting, but that your pores are getting obstructed. The ability for the ultrafiltrate to pass through the pores is being reduced. And the pump, the effluent pump that I talked about, is having to turn faster and faster in order to get what ultrafiltrate you have it set for to actually come through the pores. So we talked about the measured pressures. We're just going to do it again. You have the access pressure. This pump is turning this direction. Okay, so you know. You have your access pressure, which is measuring from the patient, and that's this one. You have your filter pressure, which is immediately after the pump, the peristaltic roller pump, before it gets to the filter, which is right here, you have your effluent pressure, which is controlled by a pump. This is the pump, and this is your effluent pressure pod. And then you have your return pressure, which is measuring the pressure from the catheter, the resistance of flow from the distal side of the hemoconcentrator to the distal port of your return catheter right here with the deaeration chamber, and that's this port, and there's your deaeration chamber. So why do you get these alarms, these red alarms that we get, that the nurses hate? And we hate them too when we have it hooked up to our ECMO circuit. Well, let's talk about them. Filter extremely positive. Well, your filter extremely positive alarm, you think about it, if I put a clamp right here, you would, I'm sorry, I put the clamp in the wrong spot. I was thinking that. Put a clamp right here on this line. The pressure is going to back up all the way through this system, all the way to the filter pressure pod. But that's not why you get a filter extremely positive alarm, because the machine isn't too stupid. The reason for that is, is that my return pressure, if this gets occluded, let's say here. This pressure is going to go actually down. This pressure is going to go way up. So it knows that my resistance to flow is from this pump to this filter somewhere, but before the return pressure pod. So you could clamp it here, but more than likely, this is starting to clot. Your blood pathway is obstructed somewhere, and it's not at the catheter tip. 
That's number one. The next thing it could be, oops, this new technology is great, except when you don't know how to use it. Return extremely positive. Now, this is very interesting because if there is an obstruction from the outlet of the air deaeration chamber, which is where your pressure is actually being measured from, right there on the top, and it's at the catheter tip or just beyond. Wait, we lost slides. Oops. What happened? Well, what do you mean you don't know? I don't know. I lost mirroring. Hold on. Okay. What I do? Not giving me an option. It doesn't show. Uh, it doesn't show you. So hold on. We're just going to take a break here real quick. It doesn't show the. Uh, the yeah. That. When I try to screen mirror, it doesn't work. Maybe we lost connectivity. Well, I don't know. Okay. Well, hold on. John, can you take the floor and chit-chat or something? Well, I was wondering on that up. formula there, Joe, and I'm not a CRT expert by any stretch, but the formula to calculate the transmembrane pressure, um, you have the effluent line coming, uh, you have the dialysis line coming in, right? And the effluent line is coming out. Correct. So why in the formula do you not have the dialysis line pressure? Because that's going to, I didn't see that as part of the calculation. It, I didn't see it in there either. Say that again. So he's wondering if you're measuring the effluent pressure out, mm -hmm. why aren't you measuring the, uh, the dialysis solution pressure coming in for the TMP? For the TMP. Because at the end of the day, it still has to remove that and I think that that probably is something that it could influence. It's a very good question, but at the end of the day, it still has to remove uh, ultrafiltrate. So you could, if you're doing dialysis, it may not be as influential unless you are doing patient fluid removal, which you frequently are. So you bring up a very good question, and I'm sure that probably affects it as well. And there's probably a dozen more other things that probably are going to affect it as well. But I think you can get a little bit far in the weeds. I think I'm trying to keep it a little more simple uh, than that because, you know, again, this is a, a, a short time for a very complex talk. But that's yeah. an excellent question well, and likely would influence does, it. Real quick, does the, does the dialysate line, is it under pressure or is it coming in passively? Well, you're talking about two different things, John. You're talking about dialysis and you're talking about CVVH. Okay. You should not be hooking this up, in my opinion, and we can debate this on a different day, but I don't believe we should be using this as a extended dialysis unit. Its intended purpose is for convective therapy. So you should be running your blood through the blood pathway in the filter, so through here, this way, and you should be replacing the fluid that you're ultrafiltrating in this area here. And I can show you maybe a different uh, uh, diagram of that. So um, let's go to let's go to uh, this one here. 
And what I'm going to do is I'm going to blow this up a little bit, okay? Maybe a little fuzzy, but I think it'll give you the point. And maybe this one's better. Yeah, that one's clearer. Yeah, it's a lot clearer. So if you look there, I'll put it right like about there. Okay, good. Okay. So if you look here, you have your blood flow going this way. Okay. Use a different color. Use can't, a different color. Can't see that. Okay. Um, Maybe how ye about yellow. Yellow? Yellow. Okay, I'll use yellow. So you have your blood flow coming like this. Is that good? Yes. Okay. And you're going to ultrafiltrate this blood as it goes through here. And it's going to remove it with this roller pump. And you're going to be ultrafiltrating this blood so that let's just hypothetically say, and it goes to the waste container down here, your, your effluent bag. So let's just, for the sake of our discussion, say that the hematocrit going in here is 30 and your hematocrit up here is 50, okay? Just for the sake of this discussion. Then you have your blood going into your deaeration chamber here. And you see this line right here? Can you see it right here? See that line? Yes. These pumps, and it can be both of them. It can be one or it could be both, depending on what therapeutic modality you're using is putting in this solution, which is a plasma water replacement solution, which is bicarb-based, reconstituting the plasma water after it has been hemoconcentrated. So you're removing plasma water by this pump over here, coming through this pressure pod, and you're re constituting that plasma water distal to the filter before it goes to the patient. That's convective clearance. And if you're running this just as dialysis, you're... Re you're Meaning removing fluid. No, dialysis. Oh, dialysis, dialysis is a diffusive therapy. Yeah, yeah. So it's just standard intermittent dialysis long-term versus which would be like SLED, slow, mm. low-efficiency dialysis. Um, versus convective therapy. You're not removing the inflammatory mediators. You're not removing the larger molecules. You're very restricted to only about 5,000 Daltons, which is basically just your ion. If you're trying to really affect the change in the patient and remove bilirubin, for example, mm -hmm. which it doesn't have a sieving, I think it has a sieving coefficient of 0.6. One is all 0.6 is about 60%. Um, so if it continues to climb, you're going to still have it, but you can control it until you can and get the shock liver or something like that under control. But the inflammatory mediators live in the 20 to 30,000 Dalton range. Mm -hmm. And so you cannot remove those with diffusive clearance. So yes, John, I think if you're putting dialysate through it, it will influence the TMT. But if you're trying to remove volume from the patient or doing convective clearance, which is the only thing I should think you should be doing with these machines, then you it will it will have no influence at all. The all of the influence is the pressure in, the pressure to the filter, after the filter, before the patient, and on the effluent side. So I hope that did that answer your question. I hope it did. Yeah. Yes. It did. Sorry about that. Okay. So. We went through return pressure dropping. Okay, what does that mean? So as I discussed, 
you expect, since this is going through a catheter, that that is going to be connected. And there's going to be, if you remember correctly, the pressure should be positive. Oh, let me do a different color. Should be positive plus 52 plus 150. If that becomes disconnected, that pressure is going to drop. So the machine is designed, all of these machines are made for temporary dialysis catheters, not ECMOs. So if it becomes disconnected from the patient, that return pressure won't have any resistance. And it's a very high risk of exsanguinating your patient. So you get the return pressure dropping alarm. That's what that means. And that's going to be something that I'm going to talk about when we hook it up to the ECMO circuit and why we see it in the ECMO circuit mm -hmm. and why... We set it up the way we do. There's a reason for us. All of this is building on something else, if you will. TMP too high, transmembrane pressure. We just got through belaboring the point. It means the pores of your micro, your hollow fibers are becoming clogged. What are they getting clogged with? They're not clogging. Inflammatory mediators. So it's just the mediators because they can't pass through because they're too large. Yes, correct. So how long will a filter last if you have a really uh, a patient who's really going through? Sometimes very short. And actually, there is a very interesting technique that is used um, by some people. And they use the M-series filters because the AN69 tends to have higher adsorptive oh. properties with inflammatory mediators. And they will put it on. So patients that come in with severe inflammatory response syndrome and septic shock and various things like that, they will put the N, the uh, M-series filters on them, run it, it'll burn out in four to six hours with filter clogging or, and it'll actually have that alarm, um, and it will, you'll change it and put another one in to adsorb the inflammatory mediators, and over time it improves. Oh. So that's one of the reasons why they use it. But if you have a very sick patient, you should anticipate that that can be a problem. And it creates a lot of problems. And I'll explain a little more to you about that. I'm going to talk a little bit more what these pressures should be and why. Filter is clogging is what I just discussed. TMP is too high. Filter is clogging. That's what the alarm is actually going to say. Which one will you get first? You'll see the TMP trending up. It'll start telling you your TMP is too high. And then eventually it'll reach a point where it says, I can't operate like this, it's not going to work, and it'll give you filters clotting. And will that, it'll, it'll stop? It'll eventually stop completely, mm -hmm. and it'll lock you out. Gotcha. So when you start getting the alarm, TMP is too high, start thinking about changing your filter. Because if you don't, then you lose all the blood that's in there, correct? You can hand crank it in. Okay. There's ways to get around all of that. But, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, again, you shouldn't be doing this if you don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to just, you know... Yeah. You know, impart that to people. I'm not advocating that you do that. I'm just saying there are ways around that for those that do this. Can I say something? So in this application, you do not need to be infusing citrate to prevent the filter from clotting off. No, we're no. talking about two different things. That has nothing. No, this isn't about citrate. This is only about the pressures. This is yeah. trying to explain to people how this device works versus citrate protocol, how to avoid anticoagulation. That's a different topic. Well, Tammy just asked me, what is, clog, clog, what is it that's clogging up, clogging up the fibers? And you said it is inflammatory. So in other words, 
you're not having an issue with clotting. No. Correct. Unless you get this alarm that says filter is clotting, then you have a clotting problem. And basically the filter is clogging alarm is predicated on the transmembrane pressure being too high. Mm -hmm. It can't remove the fluid you're putting into the patient. Mm -hmm. And so that pressure, you have a high pressure in the blood phase, but your pressure on the effluent side is so low that there's this big gap in pressure. Filter is clotting is because your filter is clotting. The it blood has path blood is being obstructed. Mm -hmm. That makes sense? Yeah. Okay. Clog clogging versus clotting. Yes. 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 Very big difference between yeah. the two. Filter is clotted. You're locked out of the machine. And you're full of clot. And you don't want to give that blood back. Right. Okay. So... You have to take all of this into consideration before you go doing things with giving uh, blood back to the patient. So filter clotted means that this filter from here to here is full of clot. There's not enough of the pore of the uh, of the the hemo the uh, the uh, microfibers, the hollow fibers. There's not enough of them open. And there's too much to resistance to flow from this to pump through the hemoconcentrate. And if you have to throw one of these away full of blood, you lose about 200. 180. Oh, yeah, 200-ish. On an adult. Yeah, cc's. Yeah, 180 to 200 cc's is what you're going to lose. But about 180, I think it is. Okay. Depending on the size of the filter, obviously. Yeah. Um, return disconnected. Again, the return, you expect this, right? as I said, to be positive. It's got to be a positive pressure if you're flowing through a catheter. So if that pressure suddenly becomes zero or 10, you're probably pumping into the bed or on the, or on the floor. So would you see the return pressure dropping first and then return disconnection or not necessarily? Um, you, it depends. If you if it's if you hook this up, for example, and I'll go over this too, you hook this up to the negative side of your uh, ECMO. Well, yeah, it's going to see a negative pressure, and right. it's going to believe it's totally disconnected. Right. If you just try to pump it into the air after you've had a high pressure on, like like say you partially clamp it, or you're pumping through a little catheter, and then you just you know took that resistance away, it's going to believe. It's disconnected. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's what you have to remember there. And on the access, I think I actually got it reversed. You're in the very beginning. I said your access pressure was was uh, was access was disconnected. It's because it expects to see a negative pressure, but if you disconnected it, it wouldn't see as much resistance. Mm -hmm. And so you know, but that would be totally different. Two different scenarios, right. same cause. Yeah. But in the ECMO circuit, as I'll explain you have to defeat this. Yeah, you have to trick it. You have to trick it, and there's a way to do that. Oh, that was it. Cannot detect, detect return. return. That's when it's really negative, or you're, it's, it's sensing something that just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. It expects, again, a resistance here. It expects to be plus 50 to plus 150. It's anticipating that. If it doesn't see that, it's going to give you a cannot detect return alarm. Now, you can override those. Yeah. But 
you're going to get the alarm. It's not yellow. It's red. It's, it's not cautionary. It's going to stop the therapy. Mm-hmm. And so you have to pay attention. You to have those to acknowledge alarms. it. Absolutely. So, John, I don't know if you feel this way or not, but I think these kids from El Arroyo School uh, in Austin, Texas, had it about right when it comes to understanding the CRRT machine. It's a restaurant. Oh, it is? Yeah. It's a restaurant, really? It's a Mexican restaurant. Oh, I thought this was a high school. Well, I feel a lot the way they do. Yeah. Okay? So when I deal with these machines and trying to explain all these pressures and why they happen and how they happen and what they mean and all of this kind of stuff. And for every example I gave, there's probably 10 other examples of the same thing, maybe for a a similar or different reason. But anyway, um, this is not me, just so you know. (laughs) So now, since I mentioned that there are three places to best access your CRRT, which again is what? The three best places. IJ, IJ, IJ? Yes, you <laughs> learn best in threes. I told you that's true. But the fourth was the ECMO circuit. Why? And I highlighted it. It provides for unlimited flow and volume. I cannot fathom in my simple little mind why I see a CRRT machine hooked up to the ECMO with orders to flow 200 cc's a minute. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Run it at 400. The more you're flowing through it, the less likely you're going to have any kind of clotting problems with the machine. The more of the patient's blood you're going to treat. But does it go through too fast? No. To be able to get the proper therapy? No. So that doesn't have any effect on how much it's able to remove as it passes through. In a positive way, as far as removing. Because of volume in the positive way. But, I mean, you know, is it is it running past the, fil- the filter too fast is what I'm getting at. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yes. In diffusive clearance, that is possible. Okay. But theoretically, though not, I don't think, in practice. In CVVH, think about it for a minute. If you can put a crit of 30 in the machine mm-hmm. and your therapy is graded over replacement over hours, right? An hour, two hours, three mm-hmm. hours each hour, right? Your replacement, let's say, is 2,500 mLs per, uh, per hour is what you're running as a replacement. If I can get that same amount of therapy done but only have to hemoconcentrate that blood in that filter from a crit of 30, to a crit of 40 versus 50, then I don't have to hemoconcentrate that blood as much through that filter, mm-hmm. and I'm much more likely to keep that filter open for a longer period of time. I see. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So let's look at a standard ECMO circuit, which is on the left side. Your access 
And we've actually measured these. And you can measure them, of course, you know, with various different devices. It's going to be somewhere, depending on your flow, everything matters, size of the cannula. I get all of that. But basically, it's going to be minus 70 to minus 150, plus or minus. On the positive side of the pump, so all negative side of the pump is going to be a negative pressure for access. On the positive side of the pump, you're going to have a positive pressure. And that pressure, just because there is resistance in this, is going to be higher than your return pressure, just like in the CRRT machine. And it's going to be about plus 140 to plus 220. Again, depending on the size of your cannula, the amount of flow, and all of that. But this basically, the difference between these two pressures would be considered your delta P of your oxygenator. And in this particular case, your filter pressure versus your return pressure is going to be the difference in your delta P between your inflow and your outflow from your hemoconcentrator or your fiber. So the advantages, though, of putting it in here are you don't have to stick the patient. If you're on ECMO, you don't want to stick the patient. You really don't want to stick the patient at all. But in particular, when you're on ECMO, especially if you're anticoagulated, you go to stick a femoral in, and the next thing you know, you hit the femoral artery instead of the femoral vein. Even if you do ultrasound guidance, it can still happen. It does happen. Uh, or you can't get the catheter in. There's all kinds of things. And, of course, I think the infection risk. It eliminates catheter malposition completely. Eliminates catheter degradation problems completely. Now, the disadvantages, it provides, of course, for unlimited flow, but the environment of the ECMO circuit is not in any way physiologic. It is by virtue of just these kinds of pressures, which any temporary dialysis catheter or CRT machine was never designed for, is I consider it hostile. They're very high. Um, if you have access line chatter, that's going to cause all kinds of problems with your CRRT hooked into the ECMO because you start losing flow and you have pressures jumping up and down. Mm -hmm. So line chatter is a big problem. You can have frequent alarms, though you can, you can definitely minimize that with a little bit of expertise and understanding how the circuit works. And probably the biggest thing that you have to be very concerned about is when you're in the ECMO circuit, you have a higher risk anytime you integrate anything into your ECMO circuit of air. That's why I say, again, and I keep stressing this, is that, you know, you have to know what you're doing and you have to be very careful with what you do. And if you don't really know what you're doing, you probably shouldn't do it. Um, here we have a standard ECMO circuit, and what they're illustrating here is the addition of a hemoconcentrator just in a bridge in the ECMO circuit. This was popular a long time ago. Um, I still get asked today to do this, but I'm going to explain to you why I don't do this. I will fight tooth and nail to not do this. So you have your your access from your patient going into your centrifugal pump, coming out of your pump into your membrane, coming back up, going to the patient. Then you have over here, I'm going to use blue, a little bypass line going this way 
through a hemoconcentrator back into your access of the patient. This is certainly something you can do, but if you don't have this hooked up to a pump and you just take a clamp off and let it free flow and you lose attention, you will remove more from that patient than you wanted to. So it's uncontrolled. The other thing, of course, is you're gonna clamp here, you're gonna clamp here when it's not in use. You're not gonna just leave it free flowing. It's a pretty big shunt. big shunt. You lose a lot of forward flow. And in my opinion, of course, if you're gonna hook IV bags up to it for rapid fluid resuscitation, make sure there's no air in these bags because if you open them up and lose attention and you have a big bolus of air it's going to go right into this cone deprime it and you're going to have no flow and it's going to be very challenging for you to get that air out don't you think it's also difficult to fully de-air the hemoconcentrators that's what i remember very difficult to de-air hemoconcentrators it's very difficult very difficult especially in a circuit like this you would want to prime it inverted yep very slowly let it spill over in the ultrafiltrate clamp that line to stop that from happening fill it completely clamp the outflow line and then connect it yeah but it's challenging at best i do not recommend it i remember doing this a long time ago and it it could take you an hour to yes. fully de-air that thing very sloppy very messy and again your effluent is uncontrolled, but it limits what you can do. Now, rudimentarily, uh, or rudimentary, in a rudimentary way, um, if I was, you know, someplace that just didn't have the luxury of a CRRT machine, and I couldn't find a peristaltic pump, just roller pump to be able to use, um, have I done it this way? Yes, I've even done CVVH this way by pulling ultrafiltrate out and using solution that I actually created myself based on the formula using just half normal saline and various different things, you can do this and actually perform CVVH, mm -hmm. but I don't recommend it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So here is a CRRT machine integrated into a standard ECMO. You have your drainage from the patient coming this way. You have it going this way to your lung and boom, back to your patient. Now you see they have their access port here, uh, and that's actually just an access port. I'm sorry, you have your access, which is red, the way it's supposed to be, right? So coming from the patient, going this way, going up through a pump, into the hemofilter, out the hemofilter, and then back into the positive side of the pump, um, on the distal side, so you're really reducing, eliminating recirculation. But this is challenging to do. And the reason why it's challenging to do is that this return pressure can be so high that it's very difficult for the machine. You exceed the machine's limits very easily, especially if this pressure is already 200 and now you're trying to pump into it. CRRT at 200, 300, or 400 cc's per minute. So this can be done this way, but I have been very unsuccessful with it. However, schematically, it is the ideal way to do it because you have blood path 
this way, you're taking proximally and returning distally, removing any risk of recirculation. Mm -hmm. Now, with that said, if you're flowing five liters here to the patient, five liters, and you're only flowing 300 here, even if you reverse this, how much recirculation are you really going to get? If you're 300 this way, and you just changed this to that direction and returned it here, how much of that 300 is going to get sucked back in to the, uh, to the circuit? Not very much. Not very much. So in my view, I think this is ideal schematically, but not necessarily the best way that I've found you can do it. So here's your patient. It's expecting to see a pressure going back into the patient of 150 to 300. It's expecting to see a negative pressure for the ECMO, I'm sorry, of between negative 40 and negative 150. Again, depending on your flow, size of the cannula. That's your normal ECMO line flows. For a CRRT machine, it's access, reversed, of course, of the colors, is expected to be negative 50 to negative 150, and in the return, positive 50 to positive 150. So now let's put these two things together. And it looks something like this. So, and I'm going to do a lot of drawing here, so try to keep, stay with me here. So here's your access from the patient with the ECBO. Negative 70 to negative 150. It could be negative 40 to 150. Depends, again, on flow and a variety of very, various things. This access has limits of minus 50 to minus 150. Well, if you're already at minus 150 and you stick your access on here, what's going to happen? Your access is it's too, be negative. too negative. It's too negative. It's not going to work. So what we do is, if you look at the arrow, we put the CRRT on the positive side. And the reason we do that is it's already positive plus 50 to plus 150. That's its limits. But if this is 150 to 300, how do we defeat that? Let's say our pressure is 250 in this line. What do we do? Well, I can tell you what we do. We use a very small line. It's a pressure monitoring line, which I'm going to show you. And it dampens that pressure, but has more than enough flow to accommodate up to three or 400 cc's per minute. So I'm going to show you that and how we do it. But that's why we put it on the, uh, the negative side. If I did that same positive side, if I put that same thing on the negative side, negative pressure doesn't operate in the same way positive pressure does, and it's still going to reflect that very low negative pressure and have to pull through a much smaller line, it and become it becomes very difficult because yeah. you're already pulling the wrong direction. Yeah. And that's where the real problem comes in. So your filter pressure is going to be reflected, of course, the filter, the return. All of these pressures are going to be affected. But one of the things that's really a concern to me is this TMP. Or I'm sorry, the effluent pressure, not TMP. Positive 50 to negative 150. And I'm going to talk about this in the next slides, but it's a very important concept to understand. I think this is a horrible mistake. This should never be a negative pressure. And there, especially when you're hooked up to the ECMO circuit. Because what 
you want your effluent pressure, uh, your roller pump to do is to act like a dam. You want it to control the volume that is coming out of the hemoconcentrator as opposed to pulling the volume across the hemoconcentrator, forcing it across versus holding it back and controlling that volume. And I'll explain what happens when you do that. In fact, you remember that conversation we just had the other day about uh, the uh, patient, the, the case that I did where the arterial line sucked full of air from the patient backwards? That is because of excessive, essentially shunting, but negative pressure. We were on VAVD. We had Neptune hooked up, ultrafiltrating. That pressure gets reflected all the way through the system. It's a closed system. Right. And you have to remember that when you do these things. So if you look at this right here, and I'm going to blow it up a little bit, this is actually hooked up to an ECMO circuit. And what I want to illustrate to you or point out is right here, you see the effluent pressure is negative 85. Mm -hmm. And you see the return pressure is negative 67. And what happens when you do that is I'm going to go over here, is you now have this at a, ne at a significant negative pressure. I'm sorry, your return. At a significant negative pressure, you're, which should, should be positive all the time, if you remember, now your return is negative, and your effluent pressure is very negative. And what will happen is your deaeration chamber oh, volume right would start to go down, 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 down. Now, you can fill it back up again, but if you're not paying attention, you'll get air in the line, but you fill it back up again. Then you go down, 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 and then you go up again. Over time, because, and I know I mentioned this before, that I think the Baxter machine is the best machine out there. It used to be the Gambro Baxter, now it's just Baxter, because it is a gravimetric device. In other words, and I'll pull it up here uh, just to show you. What I mean by that is that the volume that comes out of the patient here, which is your, this is your effluent here, mm. and these are your replacements and your replacements. These are all measured on scales. If I put five liters in here, into the patient. This is what goes into the patient. But it doesn't measure five liters here. If they don't equal, uh -huh. if they're not equal by weight, notwithstanding you have patient fluid removal and stuff, just with zero balance, the machine will lock you out because there's something seriously wrong. So when you hook it up to an ECMO pump, When you hook it up to an ECMO circuit and you have it running and that keeps adding volume to the patient because this return is negative and it keeps pulling this down and you keep adding volume to it by pushing the button to raise the level, each time you do that, there's a mismatch. Mm. There's more volume coming out than you put in. This doesn't make any sense to me. So 
So over time. Over time, it adds up. There's very tight limits mm. as to how much volume you're allowed to have a mismatch on these scales. And I think that's what makes it such a good device. If you're using volumetric versus gravimetric, that's just counting the number of revolutions on the pump, and that's it. So when you select the CRRT machine, in my opinion, you should have validation of how much volume has gone in and how much volume is coming out. And mm -hmm. the only way to, well, there's only two ways to do that. The first way is by weighing it. And the second way of doing it is by uh, going in and actually taking the line off and measuring it in a, grad, a graduated in cylinder, cylinder. Yeah. over time and then calculating it. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the devices that are not gravimetric, but volumetric, and you read their product literature, they actually say you're supposed to do that um, in, in one of them I know of every hour. Oh my gosh, who has time to do that? Whoever reads that. <laughs> so you end up in court. Yeah, and you didn't did you do that. you follow this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I think that's the only way to really do this. And again, I don't get paid by Baxter. In fact, I can't stand them. But, uh, but they, I think as far as CRRT technology is concerned, um, currently available in the United States, uh, they have the best widget. Mm -hmm. So I'm a big believer in the Prismaflex and the uh, Prismax. I think that's also an excellent device. So here's what we do. So here's your CRT machine. Here's our ECMO circuit. And I'm going to go to, uh, let's see if I can find the image that I want. I think, I think this one will work. Yes, this one works really well. So just the, oops, shoot, sorry about that. Um, what did I do wrong? You had the pin activated. Yes. Unactivate, deactivate pin. So basically we're taking this device and we're marrying it to this device is what we're going to do. And we do that down here. I have a better view of it all. So let's just look at the, uh, at the view that I want here. So if you remember, I said we use a small line. And if you look, you can see this is the positive side of the pump. This is going, this is post-oxygenator. There's our flow probe. And this is going to the patient, to patient. And you see here, this is a high pressure monitor line with a stopcock. And then you can see the difference in that line to this line here, which is by return. So there's the CRRT machine hooked up, going to the CRRT machine, and you can see that it's bright red. And then it's going back to the inlet, the venous side, which is a negative pressure. And you'll see I have two stopcocks. One here, and I'm going to give you a little better view of it, and one here. This line is hooked up to a rapid diffuser, and this line is hooked up to the CRRT machine that you see here. And what I do and why I do it. Here you see the stopcock is partially turned, causing a resistance to flow of the CRRT machine back into the ECMO circuit. Remember, this pressure here is very negative. Very 
negative. By doing this, there's flow from a pump into this. I'm causing a back pressure, which now will make this, this pressure positive. Mm -hmm. That's what I want to accomplish. Why do I put it here versus there? There's a reason for that. In this line, and this is one of our, it's just a research line. It's going from the positive side of the pump, from actually the top of the oxygenator, right back into the inlet side of the pump. And I do that because I can run this like this, turn this stopcock 180 degrees, rapidly fluid administrate if I need to for fluid resuscitation, give blood, give albumin, give plasma, whatever I need to do for the patient at that time because the pressure is more negative here than it is here. If I put... The color's, color's hard to see. Well, why didn't you tell me that five hours ago? We did once. Oh, well, all right. So the pressure, so um, if we're giving here and I'm trying to fluid administrate downstream or upstream from it, rather, it makes it much more challenging, much, much harder to get the fluid in this way. And if I have to interrupt anything, I can interrupt it here, stop the machine, and just turn this stopcock to here and really pour the volume in. But I mm -hmm. don't want to do that proximally. I want to do it this way. Mm -hmm. And that's why I do it this way. And what does that, here's another view of the exact same thing. Here's my access. It's coming right from this line. I know you can't see it, but the connection is right there. And then here's my return with the stopcock partially clamped. And here's my rapid infuser line right here going into the access port of the ECMO circuit this way, okay? And we use a larger line for the return. Much larger, Yeah. much larger, much larger. In fact, I'll go back to that. It's a very good point that you just brought up. I'll go back to that. I'll clear all of my markings and I'll open this up again because I think this is very instructive. And here is my access line. Compare that to my return line. Yeah, one's a pigtail and one's a size of like a cardioplegia line. Correct. Yeah. Very different. But as a result of that, uh oh, so sorry. Did it come up or no? Did it work okay? No, you're not full screen. Oh, doggone it. I'm sorry. That there it is. Okay. Okay, so what does this accomplish for me? In this particular case, um, I believe this one is, in my view, ideal. Now, it's not what you expect it to be, because if you look, you see your filter pressure is pretty high. Okay, so I've got a lot of resistance on that little stopcock that I showed in my return, which is going to be, you know, over here. Your return pressure is pretty high, too, but your pressure drop is only 100 cc's. I don't know how long this had actually run for, but uh, actually it was this was the 49th hour of CRRT of this one device, which I think is very important to, to point that out. Look at your TMP, 109, perfectly normal. But this is what's important. Look at your effluent pressure. It is positive. positive. Your access pressure is also positive. Now, normally it's negative, but again, I'm coming from the arterial side of the pump with a pressure of probably 180 to 200. 
So that small line dampened the pressure enough. But what's most important to me is this effluent pressure, which is positive, which means I am pushing the plasma water across the pores, and this pump is now only controlling it. It isn't pulling it across. Now, when you see in contrast something like this, check return. This is the same patient. And the reason it did it is because the patient pressure, return pressure is high. So I've turned that stopcock, but it's pretty high. That might have made a change. It may have been only negative 40 or 50, or might have been a, it might have been uh, 20, but I keep turning the stopcock until I get a positive return pressure and a positive effluent pressure. So every number should be positive. The way we hook it up, yes. yes. It should be. Your access may, in fact, be negative depending on how you hook it up. But if you hook it up on the positive side, there's no way in heck that's going to be uh, negative if you hook it on the positive side of your pump. Now, you, if I turn my blood flow up, my access pressure would go down and my filter and effluent and my return pressure would go up. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this has to do with everything is, it's a closed circuit, very mm -hmm. interconnected, very interdependent with each other. But if you notice that effluent pressure being positive, this is not going to keep emptying out. So those problems that we've seen clinically where the, it, the chamber is draining, yes. even a quick drain, remember we've, we've been yes. told that that happens, that all has to do with your effluent pressure being negative. No. no? Not your effluent pressure, your return pressure. I'll show you. Okay. Here you see a return pressure of negative 115. Yes. This is the same patient. Your negative pressure, that's because the stopcock had not yet been turned. Okay. That if was just I if you have, hook it up straight away. Yes. If I have a return pressure of negative 15, a filter pressure of negative 38, an effluent pressure of negative 103, but you see my access pressure is 127, okay? And again, it depends on flow and a variety mm -hmm. of factors. But if this pressure is negative, let me go to yellow so I don't get yelled at. This pressure is negative, negative, then it's going to be reflected negative here. It's going to get reflected negative here. It's hmm. going to get re reflected negative here. And ultimately, this pump right here is going, and that's where that pressure is being drawn from, is going to have to pull. No, I'm sorry. This is where it's from. Not there. Forgive me. Um, I made a mistake there. No. Hold on. I can't get it there. You can't get Stop it there. Stop laughing at me. I can hear you guys laughing. I'm not dumb. That won't work. Anyway. markings. Here's the effluent pressure pod. Is here. Okay? Yeah. There, I'll do it in black yellow. That's where your effluent pressure pot is. It's pulling and it's having to pull really hard because all these pressures are negative. Okay. Very difficult to do. And as a result, this chamber is going to keep getting sucked down because uh, it's pulling 
from here. It just yeah. keeps pulling it, pulling it. Now you have to fill it. Mm -hmm. Well, it fills from these bags. Yeah. So now these bags aren't making sense anymore because these bags are lighter than what this bag over here is, which is your effluent bag. Because you're sending that fluid to the patient. Yes, yeah. correct. But it's not coming out. Yeah. You keep filling that chamber. That, that fluid's going somewhere. Yeah. So that's why the problem occurs is because, and you can get backflow from your effluent as well. When you see these kinds of pressures, and in this case, um, can you? I don't know if you can see it well. No, oh, that's really. the that's the wrong that's the wrong one. So. Oh wait, you flip side. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, when you see these kinds of pressures, negative one hundred and three. Yeah. On the effluent, negative one fifteen on the return. That just is throws the whole system off. And what mm -hmm. you want to do is you want, even though the filter pressure seems high, when you're on ECMO. A filter pressure of 276, so long as your pressure drop is not excessive mm -hmm. and your TMP is staying like this. And again, this is after 49 hours of therapy. Mm -hmm. And the filters only last 72 hours. Yeah. So I've already gone two days with this one filter. That's pretty doggone good. Because three days is your maximum. It'll max out at three days no matter what. Correct. correct. It's a time. You have to change it. Yeah. It's required. So with all of that said, everybody knows Joe the plumber. Joe, his name was Wurzelbacher, Samuel Wurzelbacher. But you know what? Basically what we do and all of this whole presentation, really he's not Joe the plumber. I'm Joe the plumber <laughs> fighting for the perfusion dream. So I wanted to point that out to y'all. So any questions, comments, uh, anything you would like to discuss, John? I don't know if John's not John's there. John's not there. So, Tammy, you are here. So, what can I tell you? You tell me a lot. We get, and the reason why I'm so interested is because we are dealing with this almost, on almost every ECMO. And well, that's a very good point because I think ECMO, I think anytime you have a patient on ECMO, I think they should also be on CRRT. But at our for big, a variety of reasons. But our big ECMO facilities, they are doing that a lot. They wait until they go into renal failure most of the time. Well, that's a whole other discussion. But we need to understand these things because, for one, it's connected to our circuit. Mm -hmm. And two, mm -hmm. we need to know how to troubleshoot it because the nurses aren't necessarily used to these problems that you're going to see, like you discussed, when it's not hooked up directly to the patient. Mm -hmm. And they are puzzled by it. And so I want to understand it so I don't mm -hmm. have to keep calling you. Well, you have to look at it in the same way you look at the pump. And really, at the end of the day, what is a perfusionist? Um, you know, along with all of the things that we understand and know, physiology, all of the things that we, anatomy, so forth, um, we're plumbers. We are plumbers. We move fluid through tubes. We do. And very quickly. And again, I pointed it out in a very hostile environment. Mm -hmm. uh, could you imagine if your blood pressure was 250? That's not good. But that's his bad, but that's the normal pressure of our return frequently. And it's even higher than that if they're using 
the, that endo uh, balloon that they used to use for that crazy procedure with the endo clamp and all that kind of thing with those minimally invasive Minimally invasive ADRs, um, yeah. Yeah, crazy idea. But, you know, you, you're trying to flow four and a half liters through a, a, a 14 French catheter or less mm -hmm. because you lose so much uh, by putting that balloon in. It's half the size of what it should be. So, you know, we live in very hostile environments, pressure-wise, and, and uh, you know, and, and uh, it's an artificial circuit. So when you start integrating another circuit that was meant for a different device, being that temporary dialysis mm -hmm. catheter I discussed, you, and it's all a closed system. On bypass, you know, we have the reservoir. And unless so you're using a bag. Unless you're using a bag. And, and even then, it's still... Yeah it's still kind of open in that you have a reservoir. Yeah. But when you start removing those things, notwithstanding, I don't, I think it's just different. You have to sort of think of closed circuits the way we normally think of closed circuits. Like our cardioplegia circuit is a closed circuit. Mm -hmm. When we did that left heart bypass, that was a closed circuit. When we do ECMO, it is a closed circuit. So we're used to closed circuits. Yeah. But when you take something external and plug it into our closed circuit, that is also a closed circuit, but has the same characteristics, for example, as our, our lung does. Most of our lungs, even the ones that are sub-micropores, like PMP fibers, um, they're still poor. There are still pores. Mm -hmm. And if you hook a vacuum up to that and clamp the line in the wrong place, you can draw air across that membrane from the atmosphere and deep prime your membrane all the way up into your reservoir, and it's a it's a catastrophic event. It's a big problem, um, and so you never turn your RPMs off when you are have your vacuum on, right? We all know that for a reason. There's a reason we don't do that. So um, you can do the same thing with a CRRT machine because it's the same technology. Only the pores are bigger. Those pores. Are uh, are fifty thousand Daltons, so they're really big. Um, they go up to almost, you know, what albumin is fifty five thousand Daltons. So you're you're uh, fifty five, fifty seven, somewhere in that range. So your 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 pore size on these things, the porosity, the pore size is very big. And so think about applying that much negative pressure to it, albeit you're in a closed circuit. Going through a pump, which should be occlusive because it checks itself, but if you lost occlusiveness, if there was air in the effluent bag, the peristaltic pump, as you know, always has one point of unocclusiveness. Mm -hmm. We know that there's one point that that is. How much backflow are you getting? Is that a contamination risk? Could it potentially draw air if you lost occlusiveness of the pump if it failed? There's a lot of things, a lot of moving parts to this. If you turn the stopcock the wrong way, you know, you could suck air into your ECMO, but if you turned it the wrong way the other way and you have your return grossly negative, will it suck air back through your CRRT machine? These are all things that you have to stop and really spend time to look at the circuit, understand what the circuit does. And CRRT machines are not mysteries. They're just five pumps, one's a blood pump, one's an effluent pump, and you have three replacement pumps. 
that's it. That's all it is. Well, why do you think with the popularity of CRT being utilized through an ECMO circuit that these companies haven't come up with an ECMO protocol for the software, if you will? They do. They have. In fact, that's what allows you to use the PrismaFlex machine and the Prismax machine because they actually do have that algorithm that says it'll even ask you, are you connected to, I think it's an outside, I can't remember the exact phraseology they use, but, and that's in the newer models. I think in the older models, it would allow you to override, override. Yeah. And when well, you override it a couple of times, it then assumes yeah. that you're but, hooked up to something else. But why doesn't it change? Why do we still have to trick it with the pressures if we have an ECMO protocol? Because those pressures are best? Well, I think, no, I think it's because, yes, I, I don't think that any machine and any software could just say, I want you to operate. And it's not a matter of the software not allowing you to operate with the return pressure so negative. It's, it's bad for the filter. It's bad for yeah. your therapy. It's bad. It doesn't, it right. doesn't work because mm -hmm. you're fighting two forces. Yeah. You're trying to pull ultrafiltrate out of the blood simultaneously to your return line, pulling in the opposite direction across the pores from mm. the negative blood phase. And we both, we know inherently, we know that makes no sense. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to hook it up to this, to the ECMO circuit, it's not a software issue. It's simply a mechanical mechanical right. plumbing issue right. that I have to make these pressures work for, for this the, what I'm trying to accomplish. Yeah. 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 So that's really all it is. But they do have, they do recognize, and, I, and that's the only machine that I am aware of that recognizes this environment, that mm -hmm. you're doing something that we normally don't do here. I'm going to override this. I'm going to give you the option to override this a couple of times. And then accept it. And what I think sometimes we see is if you have your return hooked up to the negative side of the pump, right? And you have that stopcock turned a little bit, but then your 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 uh, uh, access catheter for your ECMO gets gets collapsed around the tubing because the patient's hypovolemic, and your flow drops right away. Now your access pressure goes way negative real fast. It gets reflected back to the machine simultaneously to that it bounces back the other way and you see the positive pressure or the access pressure drop from the positive side because you lost flow and then bounces back up again and that starts to make the machine really act up because it's seeing this chatter mm -hmm. and it, it will see it before you see the chatter and start alarming and when you see these particular alarms you know something is going on right and hmm. you're like, you ought to just sit there and watch for a minute. And then you'll watch your, your ECMO pump start flow, start to drop, vacillate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's usually your first indication that you're having, you're going to start having chattering problems. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. and again, it's because of the closed circuit design. No matter what you do, you clamp a line, you partially occlude a line, you turn your flow down and turn it back up. All of that you do in one circuit yeah, it goes to the other. It's going to be, right, it's going gonna, it's gonna to influence the mm -hmm. other circuit. It will influence every single aspect right. of everything that's going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was that good? Yeah, it was good. Was that good? Did I do good? Yeah.
John's not here to ask me any questions. Okay. Yeah. Anybody from the audience have any questions? Anybody want to call in? <laughs> call me. A, Somebody have... call me, please. There's a comment. There's a comment? Oh, it's on where? On, on my phone? Eleven French standard dialysis catheter may not be sufficient enough if the ECMO flow rate is high. Well, if you hook it to the patient, I, I think those are two different things, Nearman. I would not recommend um, using a dialysis catheter in the ECMO, so it's just going to be the the connection point yeah, it's just the lines. of the uh, of the line. Yeah. Um, higher flow has its own complications. That too with CRT in line. Tricky balance, agree with you there, 100%. And, yep, okay, I think I answered and addressed those two things. So, as far as the 11 French, um, you know, I don't think it matters if you're on ECMO or not. I can't say that I agree with you on that. Um, I think that, uh, you know, you're going to get three, if it's really placed well. But, again, if you're on ECMO, now, the patient may already be on CRRT. Yeah. But if they are and they have put the catheter in the right place, which there's only three places that are the right place, and that's right IJ, right IJ, right IJ, then you put a wire in, take that temporary dialysis catheter out, put your Avalon catheter in, and then connect your CRRT to the ECMO circuit. That's what you should be doing. But you've seen it where we're in the IJ because we're using a Avalon. Mm -hmm. And then someone wants to put CRRT directly in the patient and they go femoral. And that makes no sense to me at all. But that's what they've done. Yes, of course, yeah. that is what they've done. The second, uh, there is a fifth best place to put it and it's going to be right subclavian vein. The, but then um, you'll have that little bit of a curve, right? You do. Mm -hmm. And you, it's, uh, it's is it a, competing for space? It will a little bit if you have an Avalon in. Yeah, that's what mm -hmm. I was wondering. Mm -hmm. Clearly. Mm -hmm. You can put it in the left subclavian. That's absolutely the worst. It's too far, right? Um, too many curves. Well, it has to go in. It has to go in like this, right? It mm -hmm. comes in. Then it has to cross over the anominate and then come down. There's a lot of, there's a, there's a, quite a curve. Yeah. Um, and if you put it in the left IJ, it's, you know, even worse because that's got to go down, down and that, that has to cut yeah. across and then cut down. It makes a big S. <laughs> Um, and that just is problematic for the catheter because it's, you know, there's, there's, everybody thinks it all stays central lumen, but it doesn't. It's, it's bumping up against all of the tissue and it's got a little tension on it. And so it keeps sucking on the, on the venous well, system. Well, and if it's, gets, um, flexible as it gets warm, as it you does. say, then you could curl it up on itself, couldn't you? Well, probably not. Once it's in, no. No, I doubt seriously it would do that. No, when you're trying to place it. Well, it takes a little while. Mm. Catheter degradation doesn't happen immediately as soon as it gets uh, warm. So it's not immediate. It's mm -hmm. not like a coil or something like okay. that. Um, but it, it, it happens over time. Mm -hmm. You know, it'll just start to, you know, get weak, especially the part that's outside of the skin mm -hmm. in particular. But if you have a real sharp bend, mm -hmm. like a severely tortuous, you know, venous system and you have it in the femoral and it's really got a curve to it or something, um, a lot of times you'll see it kink right there yeah. and then you're just done. Mm -hmm. I've seen it to where you can't even get a wire in it mm. or it's pushing, pulling against the tissue so bad it just won't work. Mm -hmm. You can try reversing it, as I said, and that does work sometimes. But, you know, 
it, no matter what you do, sometimes it's just I, to me. If you have an unlimited blood supply and you can run unlimited flow, hook it up to the ECMO circuit, run higher flows, have a better therapeutic uh, effect from it and or efficacy, and uh, do it that way. That's my recommendation.